Good morning, Faith Family at the Landing. After hearing that, you can pray for me all the while I'm preaching this sermon. I'd really appreciate it. Let me do that right now. Father, help me, a forgiven sinner, to make plain and clear what you have laid out for us at the end of this glorious chapter. You don't mean for your word to be a puzzle or a cipher. Clarity is love, and you are love. So the very nature with which you communicate is clear. Show us so plainly what you have for us, the faith family at the landing, this very day. And I pray with all earnestness that you would not only awaken faith in everyone in this room and in the hearing of my voice, but that you would be blessing with faith through your grace and mercy all the churches of the Northland right now in every way that they need it. Through Christ I ask these things. Amen. Heavenly war broke out, you remember, in chapter 12. Over the birth of Jesus Christ into and to the people of God, that heavenly war was fought between the devil and God's highest angel, Michael. And because Jesus died on the cross, which we'll celebrate at the Lord's table, Michael won. The devil wanted to eat the baby born to the woman representing the people of God. But God scooped the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, up to himself, where he is even now. And he whisked the church away into the nourishing protection of her God in the wilderness, the wilderness of danger and delight. That's where she is now. That's where we are now, in the wilderness. How do we live in the wilderness? In this time between the first coming of Christ and the time when he bodily returns, we're in the wilderness. What's it like to live in the wilderness as the church of Jesus Christ on the earth? That's the question. We were told at the beginning of chapter 13 that the devil, who is fatally wounded by Christ's death on the cross and victory over him, sort of snakes away, he slithers away, but he calls forth an ugly, grotesque beast, ten horns and seven heads. The beast prophesied by Daniel hundreds of years before, now coming to pass out of the ocean of chaos, this demonic beast, really a person that we know as the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. He will come at the end of the age, I don't think we've seen him yet, but we have seen many antichrists before him who bear the same spirit and function in the same way and have the same effect on the church. While the church is in the wilderness, under God's care, in both danger and in his delight, what's it like to live in the wilderness? My answer, and I think the answer of Revelation as well as the whole of the Scripture is that God is purifying and beautifying and strengthening and preparing His bride, the church, to worship Him forever in heaven. I think we're under God's purifying plan. 
He's beautifying us. He's making it so that as Ephesians 5, we are being washed by the water of the word so that we would be without blemish and without spot or wrinkle. Do you know it as you sit here today and as you listen to my voice? My voice and my presence is almost nil in its significance in your life and the Holy Spirit is powerful and he has the word and it's been read in front of you and now it's open in front of you and in a moment we'll look deeply at it and he, the Holy Spirit, is washing you by this word. He's preparing us as a church, as believers, for enjoying him forever in his presence in worship in heaven. That's why this, this moment of wilderness, this season of the church between the comings of Christ is both filled with danger and delight. We need high-level intelligence. We need classified documents. We need insight on our enemy from the Lord. How do we live in the wilderness receiving all this washing of water with the Word so that we are aware and not ignorant of Satan's designs? Does that ever question ever rise in your heart? I hope it's rising in your heart right now. This chapter, Revelation 13, is high-level classified intelligence to help the church know exactly what the enemy is like. He is a devil who's been defeated by the cross, but he still has control over demonic hordes. He's raised up an ugly first beast, almost the way the father and the son relate, as as a phony trinity. And then now there's going to be a second beast making a total of three How stunningly unimaginative of the devil. He has no plan. He has no values or agenda other than self-glorification. He's not thought it through. He's not clever. He's not wise. He's not formidable. He's insane. The first beast we saw last time purifies our worship by acting like a a coercive government. In fact, I see many of the evil governments in the world today and in the past as expressions of this first beast. There will be a person at the head of this government who will receive for himself worship because he had a mortal wound, but he appears to have been resurrected from it, much like the Christ though not exactly. And he will have all the military and law enforcement authority to wield this kind of power against us where he will force us, like governments, to do what he says. Today, in the passage Paul just read, this last half of chapter 13, I see this second beast raised up alongside the first beast and affirming and calling for worship of the first beast as a kind of subtle, beguiling state church which has abandoned its charge and call before God and has become like a priest or a prophet of the state. Which is worse, being thrown into a jail cell by the state Or the poison lips of the state church planting a Judas kiss on the cheek of Christ's beloved ones. 
In the wilderness, we who love Christ must be aware of wolves who bound at us with their teeth bared and they are raging at us, ready to chomp. But we also, brothers and sisters, must be aware of wolves who nuzzle us with their lamb-like nose and click their hooves and show off their white woolly coat to us. Always start by asking that lamb about that odd tail he has. Two beasts. One, I think, John means for us to see by the Spirit is government coercion. Government overreach and coercion. Rome, Babylon, Nazi Germany, communist Soviet Russia, on and on. Many other examples. Christians are living under that kind of government coercion. Christians have lived under that government coercion. Are we now beginning to live under such government coercion? The second beast, the one we're looking at now today, is far subtler, far more beguiling. For it is the false, phony claims to be believers rising up within us and among the Christians on the earth who've actually given their allegiance to the first beast and through him to the devil, but might not even be aware of it. And their role is to nudge us, to nuzzle us, that capitulating to the government and its evil rules isn't all that bad. In fact, it might be good. There are two features of this passage I want you to see, two parts of the structure of the passage that make it come alive. I want you to notice these, and I want you to be comforted by both of them. First of all, in verses 1 through 11 that we looked at last time in chapter 13, there were statements that the original author made in the original language that simply said these facts are happening. Now the original author in the second half of chapter 13, this is why I'm doing a second sermon on this, has changed the mood and the tone of the verb so that they are full of intensity. You can't see this so well in English. In fact, I'm rather disappointed that some of the translations seem rather tame. But the intensity has been ratcheted up by John as he's writing, for he's using uh, imperfects and indicatives, meaning the things that the second beast are doing are happening right now, and they're a, a pain and a difficulty and a sorrow to every one of us. It's like he has immediate situations in mind. It's not like he's just talking about past and always true events. He's talking about situations going on right when he's writing this from his Patmos Island off the coast of Ephesus imprisonment. The second thing I want you to see, even though the intensity is ratcheted up and the urgency is now peaked just by the way John is writing, don't let your anxiety rise. Don't let fear awaken in your heart. God is in absolute sovereign control of all things in John's day and in every day since then and every day before then and today and every day until Christ returns. Oh, and every day thereafter. 
God is absolutely in control as the sovereign one. How do we know this? We know this because, as we saw last week, there's a theme of God allowing these unholy things to happen. God does more of this permitting and allowing here in the passage Paul just read, the one we're looking closely at. For instance, verse 14, by the signs that it is allowed to work. Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. God does this allowing. If it were Satan, he wouldn't be allowing anything. He'd be pushing it. Only God does the allowing. And God does the allowing because he's in absolute sovereign control. These events, as they're unfolding around the world, are not a plan B. These events, as they unfold in a final tribulation yet to come, they are not any kind of failure on God's part that he is working with and scampering, trying to respond to. No, these are the plans he's laid from before the foundation of the world. Praise his name. That should cause anxiety to diminish in you, and it should cause both hope and love to rise in you. In fact, if I were to whittle down the aim of this message and what I think the aim of Revelation 13 is, that I would say it is this. God has given us so much advanced intelligence as to the work of the enemy, both in his dragon-like nature and both beasts and the nature of their work on the earth that we can be absolutely confident that God wins in the end and therefore our hope and our love during this time of wilderness can skyrocket. People who read Revelation 13, isn't it amazing to you that the book most churches and pastors skip and don't preach from is the book of Revelation? I think that's evil. Because I find in the book of Revelation all kinds of help to make me a different kind of believer right now, one whose love is burning hotter and brighter and warmer and farther than ever before. God is not most glorified in your life or mine when our lives are bent on a lounge chair ease with every pleasure at our texting fingertips, riddled with a spirit of entitlement, complaint, superiority, mingled with laziness, gluttony, and boredom. No, in this life, until heaven, we are all experiencing war. That's what the wilderness is all about, danger and delight. War with the devil, war with the world, and war with our own flesh. Prayer is calling down heavenly resources and reinforcements, and the Word of God is our only offensive weapon. While we put on all the defensive whole armor of God, we take up the sword of the Spirit with the muscle of prayer, and we wield it. Not only for the destroying of the flesh, the world, and the devil, but also for the growing and the glorifying of our lives as we become more and more like Christ. Our task is to rage against the captor of souls while rescuing those souls captured in their spiritual danger. So life is war. Until Christ returns, life is war. What John shows us by the Spirit is some highly classified intelligence to help us know how to wage this war against our enemy so that we can say with Paul, we are not ignorant of the enemy's designs. I see two movements in this final section of chapter 13. One is, this third beast, or third member of the Trinity, the false trinity, this second beast, this beast shows up as a lamb and starts working false signs. That's the first movement. The second movement I see is that this same lamb who shows up as a beast 
actually requires the entire world to bow before an image of the first beast. You see that? There's the devil. There's the first beast, ugly and grotesque. Then the second beast comes along and creates an image of the first beast and requires everybody to bow before it and worship him or they die. It seems fantastical, doesn't it? It seems crazy. It seems like impossible for this to happen. How could this happen in Duluth, Minnesota? How could this happen in 2023? So I've titled the two sections or movements of this highly classified intelligence preparing us for the war that we wage this way. Number one, God permits false signs to purify our worship of Jesus Christ. God permits false signs to purify our worship of Jesus Christ. We'll see how that happens. And second, God permits false teaching to make both wise and precious our worship of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. God permits false teaching to make both wise and precious our worship of Jesus Christ. God hates both of these things, false signs and false teaching, but He is permitting, He's allowing these to happen in order that they might have a purifying effect on the church. Let's look at them both. First, God permits false signs. Read with me from verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Remember, the first beast came out of the water. It had two horns like a lamb. Like a lamb. And it spoke like a dragon. Hmm. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword yet lived. So let's notice several things that help us see this is a counterfeit, phony, false sign, but the result of it is to make us cherish all the more the true and pure lamb we have in Jesus Christ and worship him. First, a lamb-like figure is a counterfeit of the Lamb of God, isn't it? Of course it is. The reason why Satan prowls around like a roaring lion is because Jesus is the Lion of Judah. The reason why a lamb comes forward as the final member of this unholy trinity is because Jesus is already the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it makes us think, okay, if he's a, if he's a beast but he's coming as a lamb, he must come in disguise and with beguiling speech. And that's what it means when it says he speaks like a dragon. I think it means he speaks like the dragon who was a serpent who slithered up to Eve in the Garden of Eden and simply said, did God say... It's this talk like a dragon that wants to start a conversation about God. Have you ever had a conversation with anybody where they talk like on and on about God, but they never seem to want to worship God? Have you ever had a conversation with anybody who wants to debate God, or they want to study God, or they want to uh, change the way we think about God, but they never simply read the Bible and bow down to worship God? The state church and its so-called leaders come like a lamb and they speak like the dragon. That is, they say, let's talk about God. Did God really say? 
this lamb with two horns coming out of the earth is an echo of Daniel 7.17, which shows that all these beasts that come wreaking havoc upon the church in the final days come from the earth. We know the earth, in John's thinking, is a place where unholy things come from. All four verses in the paragraph that I just read include the word earth. Satan's realm, it's where Satan's been cast down to. It's where his henchmen function. In John's categories, we know he means for us to see this third member of the unholy trinity as also of the earth and certainly not of heaven. The second beast speaks with this beguiling speech and and it calls people to worship the first beast. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast. So there's a transfer of authority, devil to first beast, first beast to second beast. And makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So he comes around to, to people and he, and he says, isn't that first beast amazing? We thought he was dead. We thought, we thought he was out and gone and gone forever. But look, he's alive again. He's the one we're supposed to worship. Don't bother worshiping Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and all of those old dead stories are false and they're harsh and confusing and demanding and and unfair and out of step. Jesus Christ and all that he teaches and all those Christians who follow him are on the wrong side of history. This beast, the first beast, says the second beast, he had a mortal wound and he's healed. And he's got power over the whole world. He's not just interested in his church, his bride. No, no, no. He wants power over the whole world. Doesn't that sound like a God you want to worship? Did God actually say? The first beast is coercive, power hungry, government. Hail to me, hail to me, hail to me. And the second beast comes along and says, He could really do some good if we bow to him. Let's see if we can get inside and hold our enemies close and see if we can whisper in his ear. And let's see if we, the church, can survive his wrath. These false signs are performed by this second beast, this lamb-like beast who comes whispering in the, ter- in the words of a beguiling dragon. These signs only have the capacity to fool people if true and authentic signs are possible. The signs of the second beast that deceive are only capable of deceiving if, in fact, God has and does have the power to perform authentic signs. I hope you feel a freedom in your spirit, as I do in mine, with all integrity, to bow before the Lord and say, Lord, let every supernatural miracle you perform bring glory to Christ and advance the gospel and never the persons with whom you are working. I hope you feel the freedom to pray along with the early church in Acts chapter 4. I pray now what I hope you can join me in praying. And now, Lord, this is Acts 4, look upon their threats, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled 
with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the Word of God with all boldness. This false lamb talks like a dragon, exercises the first beast's authority, and calls all earthlings to worship, perform signs in front of the people so that they want to worship this first beast. Chapter 16 will call this second beast the false prophet. That word prophet means this is a spiritual religious being, and he wants to talk about God all the time. He just doesn't want to worship the one true God. And he hates it that you do. Just like the Egyptian magician in in Exodus, the Egyptian magicians in Exodus, who were able to perform signs and wonders to deceive when Moses did the authentic ones, or Elimus the magician in Acts 13, Elimus tried to bar, do you remember the proconsul from hearing the gospel through Paul as Paul made his testimony in front of the proconsul? How did Paul respond? Did he say to Elimus, you're a phony, no signs and wonders occur any longer? No, he said, listen, you son of the devil, It's like Revelation. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist darkened and fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord." Deceiving signs only work if there are authentic ones to be prayed for by God to do for the gospel advance. This is a counterfeit. Everything the second beast does, this false prophet, he does as a counterfeit. That's why it says in verse 14, for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, it sounds just like a rehashing and a twisting of the gospel itself. Notice The word wounded in verse 14, for the beast was wounded. That Greek word behind wounded shows up in the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 53, 4. Listen carefully. This refers not to the counterfeit, but the one true suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That same word smitten by God is the same word wounded. Mortally wounded? Yes, Jesus was mortally wounded. Jesus of Nazareth was wounded and fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah and in authenticity and in all truth took upon himself the sins of the world as the Lamb of God, the one true Lamb. This Lamb that comes along later is a liar and a phony and you and I should be equipped to say, I worship not this Lamb or the beast you point me to or the devil behind you. I worship the one true God in His suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away my sins and the sins of the world. While Christ was dying on the cross, He was preparing truly to rise again by the power of God. This second beast, a false prophet, has a theatrical, dramatic propaganda story to tell that He was mortally wounded but yet lives on that the first beast was mortally wounded yet lives on. He only means to counterfeit Christ and to distract us from Christ. He only means to confuse us and to cause us to be silent and puzzled and muted in our confusion. 
But do you know what ultimately happens to this second beast, the first beast, and the devil? What happens to them? And the beast, the first beast, was captured, and with it the false prophet, that's the second beast, who was in the presence and had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, Revelation 19. And chapter 20 says, They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. This second beast can do some magic tricks with fire, but God's the one who will have fire come down to consume them ultimately. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Tormented day and night forever and ever. Don't compromise. Don't tolerate it. Yes, stand against the government, but stand also against movements within Christianity that try to say, did God really say? Let every word of Scripture, like a, like a warm, high-powered water hose, press down in your life, press deeper and deeper and deeper into your heart, all the way down to the point that it hits permafrost and let it melt there too. Lean on every word of Scripture cherish every word of scripture Jesus himself said go your way behold I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves Christ went on to say in Matthew beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you'll recognize them by their fruits ravenous wolves have a way of recognizing themselves Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their good fruits. Jesus says, keep saturating yourself Faith Family at the Landing may podcasts and Sunday school classes and sermons and songs and conversations and Bible studies and writings of every sort and kind, artwork of every sort and kind, all our communication be so saturated with God's Word that we are equipped, washed with the water of the Word during this wilderness time and made ready to say, that smells like a false teacher, a false prophet. Look at the fruit of that life, of that person, of their teaching, and I reject it as Jesus warned me to. False teachers have these three fruits. They're always ashamed of God's Word as it reads. They always manipulate God's Word to say something different. They always aim at silencing God's Word in your life and replacing it with their own. Three true things about every false teacher. They're ashamed of God's word, they manipulate God's word, and they silence God's word to replace it with their own. Peter said, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. You will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction, many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's almost like Paul read Revelation 13. 
Second observation I said I made, God permits false teaching to make both wise and precious our worship of Christ. Look at verses 15 through 18. This second beast is allowed by God to give breath. Same word as the spirit. So this phony trinity has this second beast functioning like a spirit. Give breath to the image of the beast. Could have been a statue, statues placed in all the cities John might have had in mind. Today, could be 10,000 drones with lights on them assembling an image in the heavens or the skies. Could be a really tall screen. Could be an obelisk built out of metal or rock. Could be a building. Could be a tower of light. Could be a hologram. Could be a whole host of images that this second beast creates of the first beast and points everyone to worship the first beast. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. If you don't worship the beast, you will be killed. See how insane the devil is? Worship is what you do with all your heart. Worship is what you do with your passion and your zeal. I want to worship Christ. I don't want to worship the beast. This tells us a lot about what the mark of the beast is. It's not something that can be forced from upon you. It has to rise up within you to be authentic worship. And yet, the fear of death hangs over the entire world. Verse 16 says, It also causes small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. You know what? That is a counterfeit to exactly what Exodus and Deuteronomy said. All Christians and followers of God should have that that symbolic mark on their hand, that what they do with their hand, they do for the glory of God, and that on their forehead, they are to remember the word and commands of God. Deuteronomy says this several times, and so does Exodus. This is a counterfeit of that. Know that this is nothing new. This is just the devil and his team, his henchmen, twisting what has already been commanded by God. Verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. You see how costly our worship is? False prophets come along and prophesy, and it cuts a dividing line. It walks right down the middle of all humanity, and it says there's nobody waffling on the fence. You are either a worshiper of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that means you worship no one else as Lord, no Caesar, no president, no celebrity, no other spirit, nobody dead, none of your relatives, No spirit over the water or over the land or over the skies. You worship the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Or you bow before and worship the image of this first beast erected by the second. If you will not worship the first beast, your life will be slain and you will be used by them as a sacrifice to that image when in fact, because you are worshiping Christ, your life will be a martyr sacrifice to him. In 1928, a man ejected out of two Christian seminaries. Can you imagine getting kicked out of two seminaries? Joseph Stalin started a group called the League of Militant Atheists set out to begin a revolution in Russia. A previous thinker, Vladimir Lenin, had opposed religion for 10 years and received support from the Orthodox Russian Church. Stalin began with his godless five-year plan. 
Clergy were tortured and executed. Land from churches was stolen. Congregations disbanded. Most importantly, the week was disbanded. Why disband the week? So no Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays ever existed anymore in anybody's calendar, and nobody could worship, no matter what your faith. God hates when his good sevens are destroyed. Why? So that no religion might celebrate Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Stalin disseminated propaganda creation against the seven days of the week. Stalin then put his name in the national anthem, renamed cities after himself, and made himself the hero of all the rewritten history books. And if anyone did not bow before Stalin and his word, that one was eliminated. You can imagine well-meaning loved ones saying, you can be a Christian, just be quiet about it. Just keep it to yourself. Don't be overt. Don't let anyone know. I don't want them to take you, kill you, and then I'd lose you. Your response has to be, my love for Christ and his love for me is greater than their hatred and greater than death. Love Christ with me and his love will cast out all fear. The mark of the beast, I take it, is not a chip, a tattoo, or a vaccine. Those are far too materialistic and defeatable. I understand the mark of the beast to be a counterfeit of Deuteronomy 11. You, therefore, lay up these words of mine on your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Which is why Revelation four times, John speaks of heart and soul renovation, renewal, as the protective seal on the forehead of true believers. Remember chapter 7? The demons were told, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I'm not looking for something to be tattooed on my forehead. What I'm looking for is a heart and soul that is ready to say at all moments and at all times, I worship God. You can put whatever mark you want on my clothing or tattoo whatever numbers on my skin, on my forearm, or put whatever you want on me. You can pump me with whatever you want to. I will worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and Him alone will I worship. One most helpful uh, commentator I turn to often, Dr. Greg Beale, says it like this with, with clarity. The mark alludes to the state's political and economic stamp of approval given only to those who go along with its religious demands. If the second beast doesn't kill you quickly for refusing to worship the image, then they will kill you slowly by starving you out. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What's Jesus' concern? He's not concerned that you get the right mark. He's concerned that your love burn white hot till the end. Don't let anybody sitting in the, in the chairs in front of you or behind you or to the right or the left of you, don't let anybody in the front of your vision that you're looking at right now have their hot love grow cold when it gets so very dangerous to be a Christian. How is my family, how is my church family, how are my believers, friends around the world and in other parts of the country, how are we going to help one another have white-hot faith for God, like a, like a blue flame blowtorch standing against the glacier of sin and unbelief as it inches over us? Love for Christ 
will keep you from capitulating to the forces of evil. The love for God you have now will be the protective love with which he loves you and you love him in the day of decision when you will be called upon to declare whom you will worship. The love of Christ is the most precious force in the universe. The love of Christ is the biggest thing in this room right now. It's the biggest thing about this church. It's the biggest thing about anything good you see here. It's the biggest and best thing about you and about your family and your family heritage and lineage. You are defined by the love of Christ. If you're trusting in Christ right now, I call you to savor and enjoy and celebrate the power of the love of Christ. The failure to love Christ is what 666 is all about. It simply means loser, loser, loser. Whenever the biblical authors say, say this calls for wisdom, they don't invite you to imaginative speculation. Whenever the biblical authors say this calls for wisdom, they mean, remember what I said earlier. That's always what they mean when they say this calls for wisdom. 777 was what we've seen already, seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. We know how God loves sevens and hates anybody who tries to change the week he invented of seven days. 666 is nothing other than failure, failure, failure. Hate, hate, hate. Incomplete, incomplete, incomplete. Falling short, falling short, falling short. Loser, loser, loser. Because 777 means the love of Christ is fulfilled in us perfectly. The love of Christ is what's made us. The love of Christ is the best thing about us. The love of Christ is the most powerful force in the universe. The love of Christ is what you're looking for every time you're tempted to go follow a path of sin. What you're really looking for is the love of God in Christ. Go to him and find it. All who come to him receive it. August Lahnmesser, a full German, was a believer in God and worshipped as a Lutheran in Germany in the 1930s. He only joined the new political movement called Nazis to get an employment card to prepare him to marry the love of his life, Irma. Irma had German grandparents and Jewish grandparents. She didn't speak often of that last part. But she too loved God and August, her fiancé, and they were thrilled to marry in the church, though the local magistrate did a little digging and found out of her lineage and did not provide a legal stamp of approval on their marriage. But oh, how August and Irma loved each other. Their family grew. First little Ingrid was born, then Irene. August did, a, get, did get a job in the shipyard at Hamburg, and on a bright morning, June of 1936, a brand new vessel was to be christened, and the workers all gathered for the ceremony. And how proud they were on that ship that they had just finished building. And they were shocked to see that in the christening of the ship, the Fuhrer himself came for the event. When one of the Fuhrer's aides called out for the salute, he yelled, Heil Hitler, and instinctively, everybody in the whole ceremony raised their right hand and responded. Except August. He loved his wife as a person made in God's image, no matter what her ethnicity. He loved his daughter as a person made in God's image, no matter what her ethnicity, and he cared nothing for their ethnicity nor his own. And he hated Hitler's pogrom of hate against the Jews. So he stood there with his arms folded. And pop goes the flash of the staff photographer. August's identity is found out. His name is recorded. His freedom is then taken. He was sentenced to 30 months hard labor in a concentration camp 
by 1938, two years later, for folding his arms. He later died in a concentration camp. So did his wife just before the war was over, but his two daughters survived the war. You know this picture. There's August. What causes believers to stand against in resistance the darkness of the enemy that's present and is to come is love. Oh, how August loved Irma. Oh, how Christ loves his bride. Oh, how love wells up in my heart for him and for my precious wife, son and his wife and daughter, and for you. The sum of this message is this. You are ready to face whatever comes tomorrow and in the days and years and decades ahead. If you can say with me, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Lord, prepare us now for the Lord's table. Prepare us for the privilege of worshiping you in prayer, in song, in worship over the word, and now in worship of these elements, or with these elements, your goodness. Tasting and seeing that indeed you are good and worthy of worship, even if it costs our lives and the lives of our family. We thank you so much for the resistance movement that has been sustained by you in the wilderness all these centuries. And you will sustain it until your great husband, great king, our Lord and Master Christ returns to deal finally and decisively with all his enemies, casting them into the lake of fire for eternal torture. How I pray that you would ready the hearts of believers in this room to come before this table. Those who have confessed Christ and are believing in him, trusting him for all the promises he has for them, including eternal life. Welcome to this table to celebrate the work that Christ did on the cross in the past and the believing that you granted us to do in the past, but also to celebrate today the the wonder, the power, the goodness of our reigning King, Jesus, and his grace supplied for me today and every day till he comes. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity. May you be honored by every bite and every swallow and every heart resolve of faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Elders, would you join me up front and help me to distribute these elements? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to the Lord's table.